Hey, this is Ilya with the Cinematography Podcast. We don't ever come to you and ask you for money, but uh, every once in a while we do pop in like this and ask you to do something for us. Usually it's to like or subscribe or follow one of those things. But today we actually have something else going on, which is we're in the running to do a live podcast at the 2020 South by Southwest Film Festival. And it will be a fantastic live podcast if we're selected. We have Zubi Muhammad, who is is a award-winning filmmaker and producer and knows all about getting maximum production value for a minimum budget. We'll also have Mark Stoloroff, who is the president of the No Budget Film School. This guy knows everything about maximizing production value. We'll also have Ted Sim from Aperture there, who is uh, famous for his YouTube channel, Indie Mogul, which only has a million subscribers now. But if you um, would like to hear or see or have us have this incredible podcast which is going to be all about maximizing your production budget and getting the big budget look with low budget prices uh please 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 go to the south by southwest panel picker and vote for us the cinematography podcast Uh, we will also put a link in the show notes for this episode and uh, put it on our social media. But we could really use the help because about 40% of how they choose who gets to do a live podcast at South by Southwest is popular vote. So we need you to go vote for us right now. Please hit pause if you get in front of a computer. Now, now here, here I, I got to back up just a second. In order to vote for us, it does require a little bit of work. You actually have to register and then you have to validate your email and then you have to go back and you have to actually pick us and vote. We've done everything we can to try to make it as easy as possible in the show notes at Cam Noir and in our social media post about this on Instagram and Facebook. But please, please, please uh, go through. It doesn't cost you anything except for about three or four minutes of time. Uh, we could really use your help. Thank you very much, listeners. And now on with the show. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Welcome to episode 43. Welcome back. Of the Cinematography Podcast. I'm Ben Rock. I'm Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ilya. How's it going? Going pretty well. How about you? I cannot complain. You can complain. I often complain. Yeah, but but, but don't complain. No one I, wants to hear your complaints. I shall not complain at the moment about anything. Hey, uh... I'm just happy to be out of the house. <laughs> uh, and I'm glad to have you here. Hey, uh, I want to do a little bit of fan mail via Instagram from Sean Henderson, who's a freelance colorist and editor in New York City. All right. Uh, Sean writes, uh, great stuff. Can't stop listening. Thanks, guys. Might be alone for this. Would love to hear one from a big colorist. You're not alone, Sean. I'm, I'm into that. Uh, definitely a mix of artist and plumber, me being a colorist, uh, how they work with different DPs and directors, and what they experience in the grading suite going through the final steps of a big film. This might be totally off topic, but thought I'd throw it out there. Still listening either way. Big thumbs up, Sean. That is not off topic, and I think it would be great to get someone in. I think the real challenge is going to be to talk about coloring in such a way that a year from now or five years from now, the conversation will still have merit because it's too easy to fall into a, 
well, you know, in Resolve, you bring in this no, node and no, you do no, blah, no. blah, blah. We do exactly the same thing we always do. We talk art, craft, and philosophy. Mm-hmm. We can talk about the craft and philosophy of color. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. We don't have to talk Look, about, I, can I turned this knob six degrees yeah. and made it more red. I can summarize the craft of coloring in two words, orange and teal. Orange skin, <laughs> teal, everything else. No. Now you got dark blue in the shadows, orange in the highlights. Now, now you got a Michael Bay movie. Sorry. Uh, uh, no, I think a colorist would be great. How much fun would it be to have a, a big colorist come in here? It would be awesome to have a big colorist. It'd be fun to have have a, a little colorist. Any colorist. Maybe we could even get a colorist that we know. Uh, do I know any colorists? Case. Oh yeah, that's right. Kay Zalatracci, our uh, our intrepid composer, who is also a CGI artist, a colorist, and a director. And who performed live on stage at uh, Microsoft's giant event like a month ago. Yeah, it like uh, performed and danced. I think K's is actually both of us. I think that we're all just K's <laughs> in a different frequency. It could be. Yeah, if you get the right resonance, we're all just going to become K's. We can get K's in here, but he'll just tell me that I need to edit in Resolve, and I'm not going to do that, and then I'm not going to talk to him. You know what? He's not going to actually listen to the show, so it'll be fine. That's fine. That's true. Hey, so so Ben, who's on the show today? Uh, today is a real treat. Uh, it is uh, William Wages, Bill Wages. I have a slight disclaimer that's maybe Ooh. more than a slight disclaimer. Ooh, okay. Uh, the day that we were set to record him, uh, we, we never did this before and we haven't done it since. And this is why. We had two interviews back to back. We double booked. And we so we had Bill Wages and then Q Yen Tran. And the Bill Wages interview went just long enough that Q had to leave. So we interviewed her on a different day. But we didn't know that till after the Bill Wages thing, so I was rushing. So Bill and I came in here in this very room, and I uh, and he just started talking, and he's a very captivating and interesting speaker, and I just hit record, but we never recorded an intro for ourselves. You're so fired. I really, <laughs> I, I super suck. So, uh, so dear listeners, I apologize, but uh, we will start this now. It is a conversation between myself and the esteemed uh, William Wages, already in progress. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. What was your trajectory? Were you ultimately wanting to make movies? And if so, like what kind of movies? What, what were the things that inspired you to keep moving forward in this? I only had one objective. And that was to make movies, to make Hollywood movies. Not necessarily Hollywood movies, but storytelling movies. I didn't want to do commercials. I didn't want to do documentaries. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to do anything but make movies. I was very fortunate because I was blinded by the vision of that, that I now realize that the most important thing that somebody young can do is have a goal. And if you have a goal, then if you don't have a goal, you'll never make it there because you don't know where you're going. Yeah. A good example of that is if we're going to go from L.A. to New York, as long as you know you're going to New York, then you can walk, you can ride a bike, you can fly, you can go on a train, you can go on a car, but sooner or later you'll get to New York. But if you don't know where you're going, you'll end up in Pacoima or Albuquerque mm-hmm. or who knows where. And nobody wants to go to Pacoima. I no, think we can I all agree about that. a lot of time in Pacoima. <laughs> you know, you got to know where you're going. You got to know what you're striving for. And I always had that vision. I made my own films. I think it was between high school and uh, college. I made a film and I sent it to AFI because I didn't know it was a graduate school. And they loved my film and said, we'd like you to come. 
and then they found out I hadn't been to college yet, and so that didn't yeah. work out. <laughs> now, were you directing as well as? Oh, I was doing everything. I was doing everything. Now, now, I mean, like, you know, when we first find out that films are made by people and that there's a possibility that we could be one of those people. Yeah. Um, you know, I think a lot of people fixate on directing, but you fixated on being a cinematographer. Now, I at, did. at any point, did you say, nah, I want to be a director? Or, like, were you? Oh, I've gone through that multiple times in my career, and I've actually been forced into the position and reluctantly did it. And I did it for several years. And then two mentors of mine called me and said, okay, you need to make a decision. Are you going to be a director or a DP? And if you're going to be a director, you're going to have to move to Hollywood. And I said, I'm a DP. The two mentors, one you've heard of and one you haven't. The one you haven't heard of is Lamont Johnson. Mm. Great director. Matter of fact, Jeff Bridges, somebody sent me an interview the other day and they asked him, who's the best director you've ever worked with? And he said, Lamont Johnson. Really? Oh yeah. Lamont did Greatest American Hero. He Lamont was a really, really good director. He had his run in features, didn't like the downtime in between, and didn't like the game you had to play. So we went went back to television. He started at Playhouse 90 doing live television. Oh, wow. He was a radio actor. He was a big star on the radio. He was Tarzan on the radio. Oh, wow. Yeah. Did he invent the the Tarzan scream? No, that was he had to duplicate it. But his ended in Rice Krispies because they were the... I'm not kidding. They were the um, sponsor. Anyway, Lamont was was I did many many projects with him, many series and all. Matter of fact, my first ASC uh, nomination was for Gore Vidal's Lincoln, mm-hmm. which was a mini series. So we became very close. And then the other one was Irvin Kirshner. Oh wow! Yeah, and I was very close to Kirsch. These were my two guiding lights in Hollywood in the business. And unfortunately, they died within a month of each other. Oh. Um, Lamont was a surprise. Curse, we knew. And I talked to both of them three weeks before they passed away. Oh, man. And what they talked about was, now, tell me about these new cameras. Tell me about this. They were so involved and interested to the end. That's what it takes to make it in this business. It takes a passion that you can't, you can't fake and you can't create. You just got to have it. And if you don't have that passion, you can make a living in the industry, but you're not going to really accomplish anything. It's not about the money. wasn't about the money to those guys, and it never has been to me either. Mm-hmm. It's about the project. It's about telling stories with images. That's what excites me. As a matter of fact, those guys, both of those guys wrote a letter for me to get in the DGA, and the other one was Charlie Hayde, who's another director, actor. I know. I know exactly who he is. Yeah, yeah. I've done a bunch of projects with Charlie, too. Yeah. But Kirsch didn't want to write the letter. He said, no, no, I will not write the letter. Why not? I, I, he hung up on me. And I called Lamont. Charlie wrote the first letter. Lamont wrote the second one. This is to get into the, the DGA. And uh, I called Kirsch last. It was just random. It wasn't an order that I picked. And he screamed in the phone so loud that it was distorted. No, no, and hung up. And I was heartbroken. So I asked, I called Lamont back and I said, Lamont, what's going on here? And Lamont said something very profound. He said, look, Kirsch was at the top of the pyramid at one point in his career. There was nobody hotter than him in this business. And it's a long, slow journey down from there. Then Lamont said, I never got to the top. I've had a wonderful career and a wonderful life and I have no regrets. So take it with a grain of salt. And Lamont said, look, I'll get a third letter for you. Don't worry about it. I called Kirsch back a day later. 
I finally girded up my uh, courage to call him. And I said, Kirsch, do you think I'm not capable? I won't quote word for word what he said, but he said, a monkey is capable. This was for episodic, you know, and he said, a monkey could do it. If, if the director doesn't show up, it'll still happen. He said, no, it has nothing to do with that. It has to do with you have the best job in the film industry. Why do you want to screw that up? And he said, of course, I'll write a letter. I'll write the letter, you know, and, and when you're in town working on it, if come talk to me. We'll go over the script, you know, very supportive. Both Lamont and he offered that. You know, it was a life-changing experience to, to go through that. I came out. I did one episode of the show. The show was Magnificent Seven, which was a takeoff from the movies. And uh, the next year, I came out and did three more episodes and was basically here the whole season because I did pickup days for them. I shot a couple of episodes, but I directed three, and I was here the whole time. And at the end of that, my shows were, were good. They were successful. And that's when they Lamont and Kirsch both called and said, you need to make a decision. What are you going to do? And I decided to stay a cinematographer. And I have done other directing things. I'd always directed, yeah. but I directed and shot. I had never worked with a cinematographer, which was kind of freaky for me. Fortunately, it was um, Gordon Lonsdale. It was Gordon Lonsdale who was the uh, DP who understood. I mean, I took him aside and said, look, this is weird for me. I don't know how to, do, I don't know how to work with a cinematographer, you know? And we figured out a way to make it happen and, um, and had a wonderful time with each other. Okay. So here's my question for people who direct NDP at the same yeah. time, because I have directed and I have DP'd and I've done like some one man band kind of like real, yeah. really small stuff where I had to do both. But how do you bifurcate your brain so that you're simultaneously watching performance and watching composition? Well, to be honest with you, I don't think you can do both well. You can do them both okay, or you will prioritize one over the other. That's what I learned by doing it. But because before that, I was shooting and directing like commercials and things yeah. like that. That's a whole different thing. Doing it for a day is not a not a big deal. Yeah, Doing an episode of a TV show or a movie, that it takes a lot. Yeah, to I don't do know it. if we'll ever get like Steven Soderbergh or Peter Hyams in here, but those guys shoot, they DP and direct right. all their own movies. It's about time. And if you, if you don't have to shoot eight pages a day, you can do it. Mm -hmm. And it's about the actor's understanding because you can't do the handholding and the talking that you would normally do with an actor because you're busy in between yeah. setting up. So, I mean, you, it can be done. Obviously, those guys do it brilliantly. P.T. Anderson shot Phantom Thread. I, I was shocked to learn, too. Like, yeah. It's like, I mean, like, you know, he's always worked with some of the top DPs. Yeah. And there he is. And he's got the cinematographer credit on that movie. Right. Um, you know, I don't know their process. I don't know those guys. Uh, I know their work. So, obviously, it can be done. But it's about time. If you have time to do that and, and actors that are willing to let you do that, then... Yeah then you, you certainly could. I've been asked a lot of times to do that. And I have done, I did, um, I did the second unit on gods and generals, mm -hmm. which meant I spent six months shooting battle scenes and I was the director DP and I dealt with the actors too and all. That was a lot of fun, by the way. Okay. I didn't have to explain to anybody that we were going to shoot in backlight. <laughs> I just said, we're going to shoot here. And everybody went, okay. <laughs> you know, so that was all, it was wonderful. Most of the time with good directors, though, it's it's like that anyway with a good director. Like with Roland Joffe, I mean, Roland and I were on the same page from day one. As a matter of fact, I prepare at night the way a director does. And I did this before I directed. I look at a scene, 
I study it. I not only understand the plot reasons for the scene, I try to understand the subtext. What is the scene about? What is it What is it really about? Not the plot, but what is it about? Yeah. Once I understand that, then it's like it becomes obvious how to shoot it. So that's my process. That's what I do every night. And so about the second day on the first project I did with Roland. What, what are the projects that you shot with Roland, Josh? Uh, we did one called uh, Sun Records. It was an eight-part limited series uh, about the beginning of rock and roll. It's like and, last year, right? Yeah. The way we approached that was like a movie. So like when we had a location for the apartment for Elvis's parents we did everything for all eight shows while we were there yeah and we didn't have to go back because Roland directed all of them and I shot all of them so it was great fun anyway the, about the second day we compared notes and we were 90% the same really yeah 90% like the way to do this is from this angle and that kind of stuff in the last 10% we picked whichever person had the best idea and um and then a few weeks, we just quit doing that because we didn't, I mean, I kept preparing, but we didn't compare notes. And it was like, we'd do a rehearsal and I end up walking around during the rehearsal and stopping where I think we should be. And Roland would look at me and he would just nod and that's how we did it. And, um, <laughs> well, uh, take me a little bit into this process because I feel like this is, this is at the core of what we want people to learn listening yeah. to this is how, uh, if I give you a script you know, uh, what is the process and what is the output? Like what, what is your preparation when you read a script? How do you turn it into, how do you turn it into pictures in your mind? You know, I don't know if I can verbalize that because it is so visual and I don't have command of the language well enough to, to do that. Well, Um, like what, well, let me tell you about the movie I did with with Roland in uh, South Africa. What was, what movie was that? It's called the forgiven Mm -hmm. and it's about apartheid and the reconciliation trials after uh, apartheid, Forrest Whitaker plays Desmond Tutu and Eric Bana plays his Afrikaans nemesis. And um, we went down to South Africa. We realized when we got there that the budget was wishful thinking. That's not what really what we had. And Roland and I sat there and went through the script and decided, yeah, we can do this. We just got to think about it differently. A philosophy I have is by the time you get to the shoot, forget about everything don't think about what you don't have. Just look at what you have mm-hmm. and make it work. My philosophy of making movies is complicated is easy, simple is hard. Mm-hmm. And that's how we approach the movie. That's how we approached everything. How do you tell this story so that the story is out in front, so the performances are out in front, and everything else supports that? That's yeah. what cinematography is. I've done, I mean, I used to do Budweiser commercials. I used to do all these big network commercials. And the purpose of that is to slap the audience in the face. The purpose of a movie like The Forgiven is to be invisible and to make the story out in front. Nothing looks lit. Everything is, but nothing looks lit. It's all very natural. I don't want my work to stand out. I want it to be invisible. And, and tell is, the story, set the mood. And is that your general philosophy, like when you're when you're lighting stuff, or is that like per project? Like, you know, do you work on projects where they want to go high on stylistic lighting? Oh yeah, of course. And I've done that too. Yeah. But uh, fortunately, Roland's taste and my taste are the same. And the two projects we've done, that was the approach we took. Mm-hmm. Even on um, Sun Records, which was a little more upscale you know, with the follow spots and things like that. And a little stylized. It's yeah, oh, definitely stylized. Yeah. Oh, everything's stylized. But 
I would say Forgiven is just going down to the raw story. And, I mean, we shot in Polesmore Prison. This is where Nelson Mandela was. We shot in Nelson Mandela's cell. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah, he was also in Robben Island, but Polesmore is in uh, Cape Town. They never let anybody in that prison, let alone shoot a movie there. And the real Desmond Tutu wrote a letter and said, please let them come. And the doors open. Wow. And um, But the logistics of shooting in a place like that are severe. And quite frankly, without the um, Panasonic Barricam and the 19 to 90 uh, Fujinon and the 85 to 300, I don't think it would be the movie that it that it is because the cells are real the concrete's real there's no power anywhere there are lights in the ceiling but you know uh, you can't get power from that so did a lot of it with leds battery lights and uh every now and then a putt-putt generator outside the window if we could get to it because we're up on the second floor also for a lot of it is it still an operating prison oh yeah it's full of people so you know you don't have free reign to just walk through this door as a matter of fact we would go into a cell and accidentally close the door and you're locked in (laughs) and they have to go find the guy with the key and come let us out again um we finally learned that lesson but uh and a couple of times we had to leave because they had a lockdown and we had to leave and stand outside in the parking lot for a couple of hours while they figured out what was going on. When we shot in the yard, the exercise yard, which the prison is a donut basically with several exercise yards, all the real prisoners are hanging out of the windows screaming and yelling the whole time. They never stopped. Really? Yeah. And then they start singing like Lady Smith Black Mombazo, which is so much a part of the culture that some of our actors – were ex-prisoners and we had a communal cell that was about twice the size of this room where 30 people lived so 30 people i mean that's bunks the first one's on the floor and they're only like 18 inches apart as they go and they're welded you can't move them so you got to work around them you know and you can hardly walk between them several of our actors had lived in that room for 15 years they were all ex-prisoners so this meant a lot to them. This movie meant a lot to the South Africans because the reconciliation trials were a way for the people that had done horrible things to admit it and say they're sorry. That's what it was all about. It was a stroke of genius that um, Desmond Tutu and uh, Mandela came up with as a way to to heal the wounds. So we shot in townships, which are pretty brutal still to this day. So you have to... You go, no real sets. We had one set, an interrogation room, because we had so many pages to do in that that we couldn't do it in the prison. It was too noisy. Mm-hmm. So we built a set. But like I like to do, no, no walls that flew or anything. I like, to, I like the reality of the place. I like to, if you need to squeeze a camera in a corner, that's what you do, because I feel if you pull a wall, it starts feeling false. I think you can tell. Yeah, yeah. So I don't like that. Especially when you're in a location that's that historical and that real. And yeah, like exactly. That, that level of significance. You know. Right, and I like ceilings on sets, too. Uh, I want the confinement that reality has. Plus, I came up working on the East Coast where when you go to New York, that's how you shoot. And so, where I am, that's how you shoot. So I want to I want to steer us back again to your yeah. to your uh, up, upbringing education. Um, so did you end up going to film school? I know you. No, I AFI. didn't. Um, my father. You didn't go to AFI even after yeah, nope. AFI liked you. No, I couldn't afford it. Oh, um, my father cheap. had a massive heart attack the summer 
I graduated from from high school, mm-hmm. and um, so that's why I went to Georgia State University, which had a great art school. So I was an art major. They didn't have a film school. They didn't have any of that. And but I had to work my way through college. So I worked at the Atlanta Journal newspaper as a photographer. So I worked full time and went to school full time at the same time during the day. And I would walk back and they were only like four blocks from each other. So I could walk back and forth to take classes and all. And as long as I was available to go on assignment every now and then I could miss I would miss classes. And then in the summer I was full time. I started as an intern that summer. And, um, well, no, it was the second summer. The first summer I worked at a local production company and, um, then they asked me to stay. So I had a bifurcated education in that one side of my brain is in art school. The other side of my brain is a newspaper, Yeah, you know, and this was, this was old style newspaper. Now I worked for the Sunday magazine, so I wasn't doing, you know, if it leads, it bleeds kind of stuff. (laughs) But um, but we did journalism, so I learned I learned as much at the newspaper as I did in college. The whole time I wanted to make movies, but I had to make a living to get through college. Yeah, and um, I also met my future wife uh, that same summer, and we're still married to this day. So good on you on that, like being in the film business for that yeah, long. Yeah, forty three years. Wow. Yeah, she's a great woman, I tell you. Anyway. I won a couple of awards there and actually got offered a job at National Geographic uh, as a photographer. Part of the, one of the things was I got to go do an interview with Bob Gilka, mm-hmm. who is a photo editor of National Geographic. So this guy's a photo editor of photo editors. I took my portfolio in there and he's very carefully picking the photos up and asking me questions, you know, and looking at them, being very careful with them. I spent every penny I had to print the portfolio. And he said, well, son, what do you really want to do? And I said, well, Mr. Gilka, I want to make documentaries for National Geographic. His face turned red, smoke came out of his ears, and he said, where's the decisive moment in that? A monkey can do that. Have you lost your mind? Don't waste your life doing doing that. And he started throwing the photos all over his office. And, um, I mean, he's looking at them and throwing them, you know. Finally, the phone rings, and he answers the phone, ignoring me. So I went around and I picked the photos up, put them in the in the portfolio, and I'm, I'm trying to get out of there. And just as I got my hand on the doorknob, like a scene in a bad movie, <laughs> he goes, I'll give you a job on the uh, children's magazine. And by this time, I'm shaking like a leaf, and I go, well, let me think about it. And I stepped in the hallway, and I'm just sitting there, white as a sheet, shaking. And this guy comes walking by, and he goes, did you just have a meeting with Gilka? And I went, yeah. And he said, well, well, come into my office. So we walked down the hall around the corner. We go into his office and he said, well, let me see your photos. And he's looking at them and he goes, oh, this is nice work, but you know, you shouldn't bring ding and dented prints to show people. And I said, well, they weren't five minutes ago because he was throwing them all over the place. And he said, well, tell me what happened. And I told him and he said, oh, that went really well. (laughs) And I went, no, it's the most horrific moment of my life. No, it didn't go well at all. And he said, you've been offered a job at National Geographic. He said, everybody starts at the children's magazine. So um, here's the deal. Let me tell you what it means. He said, you will leave the middle of December and you will come back. I mean, you leave the middle of January and come back the middle of December. You're on the road the whole time. God knows where. He said, the divorce rate here is 100%. 
and you don't make any money. You make money off of your portfolio in their catalog because they have a huge library and they sell photos that way. And then he said, well, son, what do you really want to do? And I figured I didn't have anything to lose. And I said, I really want to go to Hollywood and make movies. And he went, then what are you doing here? Get up and leave. He said, and he helped me up and said, get out of here. He said, you will take a job here, and the next thing you know, it'll be 30 years later. Go to Hollywood and make movies. Don't waste your time here. He's still a friend to this day. His name is Emery Kristoff. He was the last staff photographer at National Geographic. He's the one that took the photos of the Titanic with Bob Ballard. Wow. He got into robotics and deep submersibles, and that's why they kept him. They use indigenous photographers now, so there are no staff photographers. It's all freelance. Mm-hmm. So it's a whole different world now. Anyway, so this perfect stranger kicked me in the butt and pointed me in the right direction. So I came home from that and thought, all right, that's what I need to do. So when I finished in college, I left the newspaper and started freelancing, doing anything and everything I could. And uh, fortunately, people hired me to do industrials and local commercials, and that grew to where I was doing national commercials and all, but I wasn't getting any closer to Hollywood. And that day, uh, no one making movies would even look at a commercial reel. Like what year about is this? Late 70s, early 80s. Mm -hmm. Um, They wouldn't look at it because they don't know if it took you a week to do it or a day. So they had no reference point. And, I mean, they would agree it's beautiful work, but we don't know how long it took you to do it. So anyway... So they said, you need more long form. So I segued and started doing documentaries. And I did a lot of documentary work because it was long form. And I did one about a nuclear defense system called First Strike. And the first half of this documentary was a fake cinema verite depiction of a nuclear attack on the United States. This was done with complete cooperation of the Air Force and Strategic Air Command and the Navy. They let us into all the bases and everything. We scrambled B-52s. I mean, we showed what how, how, how long it actually took. Swanky. Oh, yeah, it was pretty pretty scary, actually. We shot in the missile silos. Oh, wow. Yeah, and we shot in NORAD. That's one mile in the, the Cheyenne Mountain. That's yeah, the yeah. war room. That's the war room. It's one mile inside <laughs> a granite mountain. They never let anybody shoot in there except Air Force people. Yeah. We not only went in there and shot, they would stage a drill, and we shot it verite style so that it you know, it looked like it was real. It was very powerful and very scary. At that time, it, it only took about seven minutes for a nuclear strike from a sub, from a, nucle- from a uh, Soviet sub off the East Coast or West Coast to hit Washington. That's just enough. It took a minute for the missile to get high enough to be read by the radar because of curvature of the Earth. Yeah. And then you had six minutes to go, oh, my goodness, run down the hall, knock on the door, and say, Mr. President, and boom, you're, you're gone. And that's still true today, by I, the way. I would only assume it would be faster today, or maybe our, no, it's about maybe the same. our early detection might detect stuff earlier. Uh, now they have satellites that will detect it, but it's still, yeah. still not enough time. What worked is at that time, um, this was called Mutually Assured Destruction, MAD. Oh, yeah. And uh, they had a plane called Skybird. There were usually two of them flying in circles over the center of Canada and the U.S. with generals on board so that when everybody on the ground got destroyed, destroyed, they would open the 
the lockbox, pull out the codes, and they could launch missiles from there. So what it meant was no matter what the Soviets threw at us, we could re- retaliate with unacceptable damage to them, and it worked vice versa. And It's basically Dr. Strangelove. Absolutely, it's Dr. Strangelove. The trick is it worked. Mm-hmm. It kept us from having nuclear war. It really did work. So anyway, what happened, what broke the ice for me in Hollywood is somebody, I can't remember what network, did a miniseries called The Day After. Oh, yeah, my parents wouldn't let me watch it. Well, they bought the first 30 minutes of that documentary. So your stuff is in The Day After? Yep. They wrote scenes. Can I I say this is a movie that I've kind of fetishized? Like my parents, I was, that was like early 80s. Right. I I was born in 1971, so I was like. Yeah, you didn't need to see it. But. I'm a giant horror movie buff even yeah. then and I wanted to see it. My parents would not let me watch it and now I want to watch it even more. <laughs> yeah. Stuff. I've never seen it and it's always one of those movies. It's like the, un, you know, the, the thing I'm not allowed to see. Right. Well, they wrote scenes to go with, they wrote the other half of the scene, like a guy down in the missile silo talking on the phone to his girlfriend. Well, they wrote the other half Yeah. and, and shot it. Um, it probably wasn't ethical for them to sell that footage. <laughs> Because all of our, I mean, our generals were real generals. Uh, they didn't agree to be in a miniseries. They agreed to be in a documentary. I'm sure somebody had to get the sign off yeah, on them eventually. Yeah, I don't know what happened. But what it did for me was open the door to Hollywood. So that was in the course of just making a documentary about. Yeah. And who was the documentary for, do you remember? Chronicle Productions in San Francisco, which is part of the Chronicle newspaper. Okay, so it was like yeah. straight up, like almost journalism style. It was absolutely because the second half was interviews with the generals and the and the think tank people and everything explaining what you just saw. Well, that's bananas because I mean, like obviously the day after is it's just legendary. Yeah, yeah. Well, a big chunk of it is stuff that I did. That's awesome. So that kind of opened the door a little bit. You know, I could put that on the resume. Then I did a couple of low-budget movies that were so low-budget, I did them for nothing. Mm -hmm. I didn't get paid. This is a business that you buy your way into by doing that kind of thing. I've still not gotten in, and it's been many years, so I understand where you're coming from. I was making a lot of money, Uh but I was saving it. I wasn't spending it. I didn't buy a Porsche. I could have afforded one, but I didn't because you put your money in the bank and invest it in your career. Don't buy a lot of equipment. I mean, nowadays the equipment's so cheap, it's a different thing. But back then it wasn't. And so you invest in your career because the only control of your career you have is yes and no. You say yes to the good stuff and no to the crap. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have money in the bank to live, you can't say no. And that's very, very important. So I was able to do, I did a couple of movies for nothing. Uh, The producer was Stratton Leopold, who, by the way, went on to become vice president of Paramount and produced a lot of the Mission Impossible movies. Then the third movie was a runaway production that came to Atlanta called Resting Place. It was a Hallmark Hall of Fame back when they were a big deal. So it was non-union, shot in Atlanta. The director was John Cordy out of San Francisco, who's a bit of a renegade, and he was willing to look at local reels. And fortunately, the AD on one of these other movies was an AD on on Resting Place. Starred Morgan Freeman and and John Lithgow. I, um, I got the job. Now, before that... On one of the answer prints of the little independent movies, I came out here to do the color timing, and through a friend of a friend, I called Ray Gosnell, who was the biggest agent for below-the-line people, like cinematographers, mainly cinematographers at that time, and I asked if he would come and see the answer print. So he came to CFI. 
saw the answer print, and he said, boy, I really like your work, but you're not in the union. You don't live in here in L.A. Uh, I can't get your work, but stay in touch. So a year later, I do this Hallmark Hall of Fame called Resting Place, and I called him on Friday because it aired on Sunday night and said, Ray, will you watch it? And he said, sure. So it came on. It was a really powerful film, by the way. And um, 9 o'clock his time, noon my time, I get a call back from him. And he said, look, it was beautiful. I really love your work, but you're not in the union. You don't live in L.A. I can't sell you. Well, I'd had a year to think about it. And I said, well, Ray, you handle British DPs. You handle Australian DPs. I'm in the South. That's like another country. Handle me like those guys. (laughs) And he laughed and he said, well, okay. Nice. So I had an agent. 20 minutes later, I get a phone call from Amblin. Steven Spielberg's production company. Steven saw the movie, and they offered me amazing stories. Oh, wow. Sight unseen, they offered me amazing stories. So I'm all excited. I call Ray Gosnell, and I go, Ray, Ray, yeah, here's what happened and everything. And he goes, oh, that's great. You're not in the union. You don't live in L.A. You can't do it. And it was true. I couldn't. But it legitimized me to, um, to Ray. And that kind of open things up and oh, I did so you didn't get to work on amazing stories no oh, didn't get to sucks. do it because I wasn't in the union and oh. didn't live here man I joined the union and moved to LA well That's you can't me. just back then you of couldn't course. just join yeah uh, you can't join the union and yeah yeah it's one of the uh chicken and egg things uh it still is to a certain degree I, I always think the process of people getting into the union is kind of Byzantine and weird and and inscrutable it's like you have to be on a project that flips that that's the easiest almost way to get into the union. um my my story about how I got in was very convoluted, but I did. Yeah, I did, and um, and have been for a long time. And I have to say, I'm very glad because the pension and welfare is very important, and that's what the union can give you that you can't get on your own. And especially with the health care today and all, this is very important stuff. So that was that was kind of interesting. But Ray took me seriously, and I did a couple of other independent movies. Did another movie with John Cordy and John Lithgow, that was here non-union what what movie was that that was called baby girl scott and it was a tv movie so my first opening into the major film industry was in television and that's one reason i've had more success there in feature films also part of that was by design because i had young kids and i would leave town for six seven weeks for a tv movie and it's six seven months for a feature it was very important to me to go back home as a matter of fact if i was anywhere even from here I would fly home every other weekend. And it was important for you also, you didn't want to make them move out here. I didn't want to separate my kids from grandparents and from um, aunts and uncles and all. Uh, I'm close to my wife's family. She's close to my family. And that was very important to us. And I didn't want to sacrifice their lives and their upbringing for my desires. That's just not fair and that's not right. And uh, they've all turned out great. Two of them are in the business. I couldn't keep them out of it. So they grew up traveling with a circus, and I didn't have a leg to stand on. And I'm very proud of them. They're doing quite well. What do they do? What departments are they in? Uh, They're both uh, cinematographers. Oh, nice. And one leans more towards still photography, but nowadays you have to do both. You can't just be a still photographer anymore. Matter of fact, when he, he got a business degree, and I gave him a camera his senior year for Christmas, Never had any interest. And he came home with these incredible photographs and went, I want to be a photographer. My wife went, oh, no. Oh, no. Yeah. But he's done very, very well. And my oldest knew from the beginning. He had the same passion that I did, even as a young 
young kid. What kind of stuff is he shooting? He's done several movies and he does a lot of commercial work and all, but they, they're, they're in Atlanta. the Atlanta market. Yeah. yeah. But the Atlanta market is like a real viable place that, you know, it's, it's, it is, on. but you know, it's still, it's still a lot of people are brought in. Yeah. And as I said, it hasn't affected my career that much at all. I've done a few things there, but not that many. Uh, I'm still traveling all over the place. That's okay. You know, and it, it's the luck of the draw. You really don't have control of these things. Um, it's it's kind of a benefit. Like, you know, you kind of get to go see different parts of the world. And oh, yeah. I've been meet interesting people. and Been all over the world doing this. Been everywhere. See what hotels are like in other countries. They're all the same everywhere. That's what I will tell you. <laughs> it's not fun being in a foreign country by yourself. Yeah. The shooting part is great. The weekends are hard. And, I mean, four weeks ago I was in Paris. And, oh, um, that's a bummer, man. I'm so sorry to hear that you yeah, had to but be in still, Paris. I wasn't in the beautiful old <laughs> part. I was in the part that looked like Santa Monica or something, you know, and it's like, oh, man, I did go to the old part. And um, but uh, we had a screening of um, The Forgiven there that went really, really well. And Roland was there, too. Oh, sweet. And so we had a question and answer afterwards. But of course, Roland speaks French. So I was sitting there like a ventriloquist dummy not saying anything <laughs> you know nodding my head like i knew what they were actually i could follow it a little bit but they were polite they asked questions in english too then we did it again in london before you go i want to talk to you about some of the products that you've sort of been instrumental in inspiring and making mm-hmm. um so, uh, so tell me about the the uh inception of glimmer glass the idea for glimmer glass came um well, here's, here's a hobby of mine. When I'm on a shoot and we have a problem and there's not a good solution, I remember it. File it away so that when I'm in between jobs and have time, I try to come up with a solution. And that's where all of this came from. Mm-hmm. Um, usually out of desperation. And I have a tendency to not do things in a traditional way. My whole lighting style has nothing to do with the Hollywood lighting style. I mean, I'm... I, I came up a different way, and I wasn't taught the Hollywood way. I figured it all out myself. How does I mean? How does that work though? When you're on like a TV set and you're, you know, you know what the guys on the show I'm on now, uh, they when they saw how efficient it was and how good it looked, they were on top of it mm-hmm. instantly. Like my main lighting fixtures is a Leco, a theater fixture, and I have all different shapes and sizes of them. And I'm doing, I do, it's kind of hard to explain. But anyway, going back to the glimmer glass, I always love nets because there's no glass. And it breaks up the image and the edges of the strings kick a little bit of light, which gives it a tiny bit of flare. And this goes back to the beginning of movie making. People use nets for diffusion for all these reasons. Every time you add a layer of glass, you get more flare and reflections and things like that. Problem with the net is in the circles of confusion or the out of focus point light, point Mm -hmm. source lights, like a a Christmas tree out of focus is a bunch of spheres. Well, you see the net in focus. It looks like a chain link fence. I've asked every optical engineer I've ever met why, and no one's been able to give me an answer. How a net that is an eighth of an inch from the front of the lens can be in perfect focus in the circles of confusion. It makes no sense. Um, even the head optical engineer at Cook <laughs> couldn't really give an answer 
or if he did give an answer, I just didn't understand it, but I don't think he had an answer. <laughs> so I was trying to come up with something that would do the same effect of a net without the artifact, which meant it had to be glass, obviously. And uh, what I did was I, uh, with the help of Denny Claremont, who told me where to buy the optical glass and the optical cement and everything. Before that, I was taking old damage filters from Panavision in Atlanta. Ed Stam would give them to me because they were damaged. They couldn't send them out on a shoot anymore. And I would soak them in acetone and separate the filters to get the glass and cut it. Usually six by six filters were damaged, so I could cut four by five size out of it. It was a lot of trouble. Denny said, look, you shouldn't be around acetone that much. Here's where you buy the optical glass. Here's the optical cement. Do that instead. And so I started experimenting, and what I found was a way to suspend a particulate in the cement and then let it, it's kind of a complicated process, but anyway, laminate it with yeah. optical cement. And uh, and it did the exact same thing that a net does, but nothing in the circles of confusion. You see the particulate in it, but you don't notice it. And, and I'm um, assuming it's an irregular pattern too. So yeah, it's, it's irregular. So yeah. you're not going to, even if you could pick it out, you wouldn't pick it up. Right. Way. No, you don't even notice it. Anyway, so I made them for quite a while. I gave a set to Alan Davio. I gave some to Steve Post. I could swear that when I was in Florida, that at Panavision, Florida, they included it in a uh, seminar that they did there once. Yeah, they very well could have. What happened is I showed them to Ira Tiffin, mm-hmm. who was head of development at, at, at Tiffin, and they took it on. Now, the way they made them is different than the way I make them, but it's the same thing. I used graphite for the particulate because it had a little shine to it. And I don't know exactly what they use. It's all proprietary, and it doesn't matter because now they're perfectly optical flat and and work very well. So they manufacture them. And, and as a matter of fact, Ira came up with the name Glimmer Glass. Mm-hmm. We called them schmutz, <laughs> which probably wasn't a great title, but that's oh, what we called them. very catchy. Yeah, exactly. Schmutz means dirt in German or something <laughs> like that. I, I only played around with this because I needed them. Mm-hmm. And nobody had anything like that. So I made my own. Necessity is the mother of invention. Absolutely. And nothing I've come up with was just for the joy of coming up with it. It was because I needed it. I made a collimator for uh, setting the back focus. I looked at the ones that were being made that they were charging seven to $10,000 for. And I went, that's ridiculous. I made one for $5. And it was just as accurate. Wow. All it is is a false infinity. This is an idea. That's been, when you go to the eye doctor, that's what you're looking at. So that was very simple. Tiffin almost made those, but we realized the market is so small. There's a lot of machining in the ones that are made uh, by Schneider and everybody. And I was trying to make something that was much more simple with uh, plastic that was more stable for heat and cold. But this was right at the evolution of going into digital when back focus was still a problem. But we knew that once Aerie and Panavision and everybody got involved, back focus wasn't going to be a problem. Mm-hmm. So there was a limited time span there where it made sense to um, to sell those things. So ultimately, together uh, with Tiff and we decided, let's not do it. The problem with the film industry and all of this equipment is the industry is so small that there's that's why everything costs so much. Everything's handmade. If you flood the world market with those things, you're probably going to sell 10,000 of them. Well, that's not enough to make any money. Yeah, yeah. So it's not worth it. It's not worth bothering with. Every one of the collimators that Schneider makes, some guy sits there and works the lathe and makes it by hand. Same thing with the lenses, movie lenses. They're all handmade. Yeah. So it gets very expensive, and it's understandable. It's not a criticism. It's just the reality of the of the beast. If you want to get 
rich inventing stuff, come up with something you can sell for nineteen ninety five on television. <laughs> then you'll get rich. <laughs> In the impulse buy line at Walmart. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's what we, we were actually trying to make it an impulse buy thing where you'd probably sell it for $100. And we could have done it. I mean, we did the math. We did the research. We did everything. But by the time it was going to come out, yeah. it was too late. So I hate to do this because uh, we have a little bit of limited time situation here today, but we want to have you back. So when you come back to L.A., will you please come back? Oh, sure. I want to talk about burn notice and, and, and a lot of your later career. Um, but before you go, is there a place that people can find your work online, website, Twitter, Instagram, anything? Um, WilliamWages.com is my website that has sample reels and different things on it. And, and obviously to see your actual reel, just turn on any television show and you probably shot it. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> No, there are a lot of other good people out there <laughs> doing a lot of good work. I tell you, uh, one thing about Episodic is th- they keep raising the bar. Oh, yes. And and you do it in eight or nine days. It's staggering. I was offered TV. I did a lot of pilots that went to series. They always offered me the series. I never took it because I made movies. And I looked down my nose at it. And then when the industry did a flip-flop, all of a sudden my agent forced me to shoot uh, episodic. It was really burn notice. It was not exactly the first one, but the real first deep experience. And I realized, my goodness, if you can survive doing this, you can do anything. <laughs> and the, the level, the, the requirements now are so high that the show I'm on now, it, it's just staggering. And somehow you do it. It's amazing. You know, I mean, we're doing nine pages a day. Wow. Eight pages a day. And we'll burn notice. We did that and we blew stuff up every day or had a fight or something. You know, it was, it was, it was gigantic, but you do it. So uh, thank you so much for coming out. And uh, we look forward to bringing you back and and doing a deeper dive into, uh, into much of your TV career. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right. So that was uh, Bill Wages. Bill, we'd love to have you back. And when we do, we'll record an intro. Yes, I, th- I think that'd be fun. Have an intro. So, yes, it was <laughs> very in media res, as they said, as the ancient Greeks used to say. I, I hope people made it through and didn't go, what are they talking about? Who's scra- Why am I scratching? What, what's, what's Did I have thing? a stroke? <laughs> I totally missed the first part of what he was saying. Yeah, you, you missed it because. Because I missed it. Yeah, that was. Because I, all, all I, I had one job. <laughs> it was to push this the, button. The red button. I had to the push giant. the red button that, that makes it record things on the, on the Zoom recorder. And I didn't do that because I suck. Boo. Hey, Ben, guess what? Oh, uh, it's, is it my birthday? <laughs> No, it's yeah. time to pay the bills. Most certainly it's not my birthday. Yeah, you, your your birthday was like four months ago. April. Yeah, yeah, yeah four months ago. Yeah, exactly. so, good math. Yeah. So, uh, hey, time to pay the bills. We've got to thank our wonderful sponsor, Aerie. Aerie's got something new they just dropped last week. Oh, what's that? It is called... I hope they, I hope they didn't break it when they dropped it. They did not. So, Aerie uh, dropped this week the DEH1 digital encoder head. Just rolls off the tongue. What a digital encoder head is this? It is essentially a tripod head. Uh, which you're familiar with the tripod, right? You know, you understand that. I don't a know. What a, I don't know what a tripod is. I've been doing a cinematography podcast for five years, but what's a tripod? I was not speaking to that, you. I was talking to you, our oh. listeners, you, everyone. Who's I think I should it. start. That should be my first question to every DP. Now, um, I have one important question. What's a tripod? What's a tripod, and why do they call it that? <laughs> anyway, go on. Okay, so the digital encoder head gives you one cable access. Uh, so a single cable will allow you to remotely control 
the panning, the tilting of the Airy stabilized head that we talked about last week, the stabilized remote head, which is the SRH-3, another one that just rolls off the tongue. So uh, really easy. The DEH-1 controls the SRH-3 uh, by way of a head that goes on any tripod. Looks like it's Mitchell base. It's a collaboration with uh, Cartoni, a beautiful looking product. And the DEH-1 allows you to remotely move, pan, tilt, uh, all the stuff that you might want to do with your stabilized head. It's it's super cool. And you can add all the extra sort of fun, airy stuff like master grips and, and that sort of thing. And the, the OCU-1. So I have, I have a question for you. Yeah. When I started film school at the Valencia Community College Film Program in 19-something. Ooh, in Florida. In Florida. Shout um, out to... Valencia Valencia which is now Valencia College and actually I toured their film program a few months ago when I was in Orlando and it's freaking amazing so uh, shout out to my alma mater the Valencia film program which has literally no staff in common with when I was there um, 100% turnover maybe yeah, 200% well the guy who ran it passed away a few years ago he, well, that he puts a damper on it, it does yeah. however he didn't run it when I started it was a gentleman named Michael Corbett and mm. Michael Corbett told us like first week like no real film shoot would ever have like a fluid head tripod. They all have wheels. Wheels are the sign of uh, a professional. Professional. The other, yeah. The other thing they said was like, uh, if you're ever thinking about working for a producer, look at their tires. That mm. was uh, just a little a little pro tip we were given. But the uh, if they got bald tires, this is not a good producer. I, I to this day it haunts <laughs> me because I'm like, do people come and meet with me and then go look at my tires? Because I'm not good at tire maintenance. I knew someone who uh, every time he uh, interviewed someone to lease a a room in his house or to lease a lease a place, uh, he would follow them back out to their car to see how messy their car was because he felt like however messy the car was, that's a perfect representation of how that person's going to be in a, in a house. You know, my car is way less messy than I am. Well, than my house. My house is, a, is looks like a tornado went through it. Anyway. Oh, wait, you want me to answer your question? My though. question yeah. about, about the wheels. The what wheels, is the yeah. state of the art? Because like I've been on a gazillion professional shoots and I haven't seen that many wheels. Wheels take skill. It, it takes training. And there's some truth actually to what uh, Michael Corbett said, yes. w- say, said way back when. But I think that that's a little bit dated. I think at the time that, that you learned that, there was probably some truth. And I have to say that all of the earliest jobs I did in film uh, as an AC all had gearheads on it. It was yeah. probably, uh, I was probably maybe a year or two into my career before I was on a job that didn't have wheels. And the truth of the matter is, is that they're heavy. Uh, if you have to move quick, it's not an it's not nearly as quick or easy. They are really repeatable, but you got to have someone who knows what they're doing and kind of kind of like in the way that that, that nonlinear editing replaced uh, linear sort of film style editing. Uh, working with a fluid head is just typically easier for anyone to walk up to it and have an understanding of what yeah. needs to happen. With wheels, there's some, some stuff that is not exactly intuitive. And so while you can get away with doing simple moves. If you really want to do something complicated, you have to master your game. And there's a lot of people who used to just go to rental houses, put a laser pointer or a yeah. flashlight and uh, trace figure eights. We or, would all do that. Yeah. We'd, you'd write your name in it. And I always remember that like in my brain, the intuitive place is that you would put the wheel that panned on the side and the one, no, excuse me, the one that tilted on the side because you're literally tilting it and the pan on the back because you're moving it back and forth, but it's actually reversed. It is. Like the way that th- they are literally in the most counterintuitive position on the head itself and it is a a heavy thing we had a whorl head at that program we put the airy sr2 on it 
and uh, and it was it was a bulky bulky ass setup. Yeah, that that whirl head could have taken a camera way way heavier than your SR2. Correct. Uh, yeah, that 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 yeah. thing was gigantic. And and talk about hernia inducing if you had to like load it in and out of your truck. So that's yeah. Like I a, mean, well, I mean, I in that program it was all grip camera, sound, and electric. So when I was in the camera department, I would have to lug that crap around and load cameras and do all that stuff. And really, uh, there are some people who still love the wheels and. Technically, there's some systems now that are all electronic, and if you really want to to switch that, so you did have your your tilt on one side and your your uh, pan on the other, if you want to swap them, you can do that today without much hassle. But if you were to like set foot on like uh you know the Black Panther set, is mm. is the operator there on wheels, or is it just kind of a like a dealer's choice right in in the state of the art today? A hundred percent dealer's choice. Um, I would say that certainly as your budgets go up, the more likely you are to see them. And some people swear that the best way, I mean, because frankly. If you need to repeat a move several times, you can count out at your rotations, one, two, three, four, five, six, yeah. seven, and you know exactly you're going to hit the same spot every time if you turned it at the same speed and everything else. You're going to come to the same spot at the same time. Makes sense. Yeah. But when you're working with the fluid heads, when you're working with almost any other sort of system, you don't necessarily have those gears that you can rely on for exact placement. But frankly, actors don't always hit their marks. You need to have a little bit of extra. Also, if you're on a dolly, you're not guaranteed to hit the same spot because the dolly grip could be moving at a different rate. No, but it is sort of like magic. It's kind of like working like on in team sports when your dolly grip, your camera assistant, and you're on the wheels and everyone's hitting their marks exactly where they're supposed to. And the actor's there. That is sort of like this wonderful camaraderie and team sport moment when everyone's hit exactly what they're supposed to. But then usually what happens, the director goes, you know what? I want one more. Or, can we, can we, can we do a variation on that? Or Do it again, yeah. but this time do it more better. Yeah. That's, that's my favorite. Or, or the script, scripty comes over and goes, ah, drop the line. Or, <laughs> ah, I didn't say this. Or, yeah. Oh, continuity problem. So, but yeah. your, your move was within three arc seconds of the exact <laughs> correct position. Good, good work, nerd. And now, short ends. So, Ben, uh, it's the short end time. It's time to talk about your obsession of the week. Uh, my obsession of the week, I would say, is uh, the new Quentin Tarantino movie, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. You're not alone. I've been kind of monitoring the Facebooks and stuff, and there's a lot of people now ranking Quentin Tarantino movies. I, I there's a lot of too. controversy about this this movie. There's also controversy well, around Quentin polarizing. Tarantino as a person. It is a polarizing movie, and it's funny because I saw it. Okay, so I went and saw it at the historic Vista Theater. That's historic. Yeah, in, uh, yeah it's in uh, Los Feliz which uh, locals call Los Feliz mysteriously. I don't know where that pronunciation came up. But. There's a good story online called The Eight Pronunciations of Los Angeles. Los Feliz is the correct way to pronounce that city. And it's not like I'm going Los Angeles. Los Feliz is how you pronounce that word. Anyway, uh, I'm not going to get into that. But San Pedro. If you've, been, if you've seen the movie um, True Romance, Sure. The uh, at the beginning of the movie, the Clarence uh, and Alabama character go to a movie. They go to see a uh, Sonny Chiba movie, mm. and it is actually it's supposed to be in Detroit, but they're at the Vista Theater. That is where I saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I got there very early, and so I was like second online, so I could get a really good seat. Although most of the seats in the Vista are pretty good, and the uh, the person who was first in line. Uh, she just directed a movie called Sophie Jones. So everyone keep your eyes out for Sophie Jones. I don't know anything about it, but she seemed like a nice person. Anyway. And so you gave her a shout out right here. Yeah. Great. Thanks. Um, but uh, So LA of you. It is. Well, it was weird because it's like we're all online to see a Tarantino movie and I think literally everyone online was a filmmaker and I, I felt like I'm not going to 
talk about myself. I'm just going to hear whatever. I'm, I'm going to go into interviewer mode and just hear what everyone else has to say. Um, they're, they're presenting it in 35 millimeter. I have to say, I don't uh, actually care if I see movies in 35 millimeter or digital. It doesn't make a difference to me. I know hmm. that I know that's apocryphal. Uh, if it's an IMAX movie like uh, sure. Dunkirk, sure. it makes a difference. But uh, the Vista is a great theater. It was, it was fun to see it. Digital's getting so good. It too. really is yeah. pretty good. I mean, like in, when in order to tell the difference, I have to s- look for Gateweave or Dust. Then I feel like film has lost. Nerd. <laughs> <laughs> Former projectionist. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I I think it, it is a really interesting movie in the way that Ter- have you seen it yet? I have. Okay, good. Yeah, so no, we- no, no spoilers for me. Uh, yeah, I don't think I'm going to really spoil that much. Uh, we can spoil stuff. Who cares? Yeah. If who you cares? don't, if you don't want to hear about how, how, uh, once upon a time in Hollywood, uh, skip ahead like four minutes right now and yeah. you'll, we'll be on my short end. I really liked it. I think I understand why the, cause I walked out kind of scratching my head. Like why are the Manson family characters in this movie? It doesn't quite make sense. Why yeah. the revisionist history? I sort yeah. of saw the ending coming because yeah. I, it's something that I feel like Tarantino is never predictable. And yet. I feel like he strongly predictable. He copied himself a lot in this one. I don't know. Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio have never been better, but I feel like there's a bigger conversation that's been kind of coming up about Tarantino in general and sort of his legacy as a filmmaker. And I think he's a complicated thing. He's a complicated person. Uh, And he makes films that are very unique to him. There's, you know, like, there were calls of misogyny and maybe I'm not qualified to talk about this because I'm like not a woman, but my favorite movie of his, of all of his movies and, and no one is probably going to agree with me is Jackie Brown, hmm. which is a movie with a strong female protagonist in Pam Greer and Pam Greer and Robert Forster both turn in like Oscar worthy performances in that movie, in my opinion and Samuel L. Jackson. But I think that all of his movies are like little, little amazing pieces of art and the way he recreates a, an old timey Hollywood from the sixties and sort of, I feel like it's a parable about the end of old Hollywood and the beginning of sort of the new Hollywood as embodied by Roman Polanski also, maybe an imperfect vessel for uh, for embodying a movement of cinema. Agree. But it just so happens that his wife was murdered by Charles Manson. So, you know, you can't say, well, it was actually Francis Ford Coppola or, you know. Well, I, I got to say that it's a it's a big deal. Actually, I mean, the, the whole Charles Manson, Roman Polanski, Sharon Tate. I mean, that is now really super steeped in Hollywood lore. So literally uh, when I was going when I was going to a a film program in Northern California, there's an arrow. It's like college this way and San Quentin that way. Charles Manson. And it's like, you know, it's part of it's part of, uh, you know, our, our shared collective history working in this industry. It's like everyone knows that story. And it's interesting because Quentin Tarantino tells the story, but he doesn't tell it true to history. He tells his own revisionist history version yeah. like he does in some of the the other movies that that he makes so it's like i have but like sort no, of, nobody gets mad when you uh shoot hitler you know uh, yeah that's you know, right spoiler alert for those of you who haven't seen inglorious <laughs> bastards uh yeah that that's that's fantasy but people i think do get a little bent out of shape when you're changing the story which was like a big you know well, when, ca- when characters who are there are still alive that's right and still around, you know, yeah. like, um, you know, I mean, obviously none of the, none of the people in Sharon Tate's house are, but like, you know, the, there are, there are characters from that period of film history. Some of them are in this movie. I actually feel like the biggest, he- I, I, again, I don't know that people will agree with me on this. To me, the biggest head scratcher in the whole movie is the Bruce Lee scene. Yeah. Where Bruce, Bruce Lee scene. is kind of painted as a doofus. Kind of a douchebag. Yeah. He comes off. He doesn't come off as like uh, particularly sympathetic. He's yeah, just, he, he's he comes macho. across as, as cocky and incompetent. Like it, it was weird. 
And, and it's like, it, for, for what purpose? The purpose was to get around that Brad Pitt's character was, uh, uh, killed his wife or mm-hmm. was, uh, was a tough guy. I, I like, well, can, it wasn't can, about him. That part wasn't about him having killed. Well, I guess it was to it was that yeah. thought, but his, his fight with Bruce Lee was, I think to show that he could actually kick Bruce Lee's ass, but I feel like then make Bruce Lee formidable. Uh, like Bruce Lee isn't formidable in this movie, but, uh, I don't know. I, I I, I mean, overwhelmingly, I, I, I think I like it. It's just such an oddball movie. There's wonderful characterization. There's all these kind of like uh, interweaving stories where you go like, oh, I'm meeting some characters. Is this going to pay off? Oh, it's not going to pay off. Or is, is this going to yeah. be is this going to be something important? And and then it's not. And I, I'll tell you, I have a feeling from Quentin Tarantino movies that sometimes I feel like the story goes in a way just so Quentin Tarantino can be like, I did something cool. Isn't this cool? I want to show off how, how cool this is. Yeah. And that doesn't necessarily serve the story. I mean, maybe it, for Quentin it does, but for the audience, I, I feel like there was a joke that I wasn't in on as an audience member. Maybe a little bit. I mean, like I, I always look at a movie and say like, well, this movie makes sense. You know, like 2001, a space odyssey in a hundred years, people will still be able to get the impact of that movie, even though we, none of it came to pass. But I feel like, you know, it it's 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 kind of forever and not that every movie has to has to live and die by that metric. Obviously, most of them don't. But I feel like, you know, people like Tarantino, Martin Scorsese, like they make auteur pieces like exclusively. Tarantino has made nine auteur pieces. Agreed. Quentin Tarantino has never had to take a movie for the money, which like you can't say the same of. No. Steven Soderbergh. You can't say the same. Like there's a bunch of Spielberg. Yeah, a, yeah. a bunch of the a bunch of people who whose work we love and revere uh, have made things because it's like, hey, <laughs> they had to go sell some cars. They had to yeah. go, uh, you know, pay, you know, pay for an island. I yeah. don't know. They had and, to do something. And yeah. Tarantino, you know, like has never done that. Yeah. And I love the purity of his career. And honestly, the only movie of his that I can say I'm not a fan of is uh, Death Proof. Mm. Um, and people have told me why death proof is awesome and I can't really argue with them. I just don't like it and liking things and not liking things is completely subjective and I'm not saying it's without merit. I'm saying I don't like it, uh, which I think is legit. And did I like this movie? Like it caught me in weird ways because I wasn't, I wasn't expecting certain things. And then the ending I, I called halfway through. I got to say that both Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio, they're they're fantastic. And you're instantly reminded why they are such. Huge Neither stars. of them has ever been better, in my opinion. Yeah. And um, and it the the thing about Tarantino that um, there are several things to me that are amazing about him. I mean, I think his writing is is generally some of the best. Very few filmmakers showed up at their first movie, although he did actually make a feature called My Best Friend's Birthday that was never released. And, oh, really? and there's pieces of it on YouTube you can watch <laughs> and it kind of looks like Clerks. Oh, OK. It's not that good. And he's in it and he's he's all right. He's he's him. Starting with Reservoir Dogs, he shows up with his cinematic voice fully formed, which most people don't agree, don't get to do. Still my favorite, favorite Tarantino movie. And the thing about him that I think you just cannot knock is that nobody casts better than him. Mm. I don't know if it's him or his casting director, but it's like he rejuvenated John Travolta's career from nothing. Yeah. Uh, he, he turned Sam Jackson into a, yeah. uh, you know, I mean, Sam Jackson already had a career, but he became a household name. Yeah. Samuel so. L. Jackson became a giant deal. Ving Rhames. Like oh, we didn't sure. know who Ving Rhames was. Um, we didn't know who Christoph Waltz was. Oh yeah. Um, no, ec- excellent. Excellent. And I, I would yeah. say that like he gave Uma Thurman a dimension to her career that she n- had never had before she was in Pulp Fiction hmm. and kind of made her cool in a way that, 
you know, I'm not saying that her. I'm, no, she wasn't cool before. Yeah, she was. But she just became she, ultra cool. She's a, a fine actress. But yeah, I mean, like, like it really opened up a new dimension uh, to her performance, I think. And I mean, you know, uh, rejuvenated, uh, like I said, Pam Greer, Robert Forrester, uh, you know, obviously Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt do not need career <laughs> rejuvenation. rejuvenation. Yeah. They're doing just just Jim Dandy right now. Um, although, you know, there were some pretty cool cameos from people like Clue Gulliger in this that that I it was exciting to see Clue Gulliger in a, in a movie. I haven't seen him in one in a long time. Um, he's like old, old school cowboy guy. I don't know that I've seen a movie in a long time that launched so many goddamn think pieces as once upon a time in Hollywood and a lot of them negative by the way yeah, I that's to, true there's it's been it's been well polarizing but you're right a lot of negative think pieces for sure and we didn't even once mention feet in this the feet thing is weird I I, I have to admit I, I could have done without a few shots of bare dirty women feet there, there's it's it's it, it it got it got a little weird. I do want to say though that like there was that uh, I didn't even notice until people pointed it out after. So, oh, I, I, I was, was conscious. Of I it. was yeah. constant conscious of it every time. I was like, really, another close up of fucking feet. <laughs> um, okay. He's into feet. Yeah. Apparently, there was an interview with Robert Richardson where he kind of went into a little bit of detail. About oh, really? That. Oh, I I didn't listen to that. Yeah, well, should, if, we get, it. if we ever get if we ever get Robert Richardson on here, uh, yeah. One one of my takeaways was at Cannes, uh, this reporter took him to task for having Margot Robbie as Sharon Tate and didn't give her that many lines of dialogue. And after I saw it, I feel like, and I kind of waver, but I feel like the mistake was casting a movie star in that role because the movie's not about Sharon Tate. So if it was just a woman who could act really well who looked like Sharon Tate, it wouldn't have stuck out. It, it was that Margot Robbie, who's you know an amazing, amazing actor, was in that role and... Sure, she was underused, but, you know, Emile Hirsch was also in that. He was also underused. I mean, like, lots of people are underused. What, uh, what do you do? Uh, okay, my, my, my two cents on that is, had the Sharon Tate character not actually been Sharon Tate? Like, I'm fine with Margot Robbie, but if they had just made it, like, Sharon... Taryn uh, Shate. Yes, exactly. Taryn Shate would have been perfect. Had, had they done that, and then uh, everything that happens in the Hollywood Hills would feel very much like, here's alternate history, but we're not necessarily trying to monkey with the, all the people and things that you already know and love or yeah. understand or, or have a history or sympathy or whatever it might be. So that, that's, that's my two cents. I think it might have been slightly more effective that way but here we've we've now spent a bunch of time talking about a movie far far much more time not than the movie is because it's almost three hours long but i gotta say that like for 80 percent of that movie i am right there with it going like uh, and i love brandy the dog i love that whole scene in the van nuys drive-in that was awesome i mean that that for me is like classic tarantino like the best of tarantino the that entire setting up the whole character getting to learn brad pitt's backstory then getting to see flashbacks and everything else this this is the type of stuff that you 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 hope for and then yeah by the time the end comes around i I don't know how you feel it's my my favorite whole sequence was when uh brad pitt's character goes to spawn ranch Mm, and yeah, visits that's, that's a great scene. George Spawn. And I feel like that is the nut of this movie is that George Spawn was a guy who ran an old movie ranch. And now he's a blind fool who's being literally fucked by hippies. Yeah. And I think that he's saying something about the way hippies fucked up Hollywood. Hmm. Yeah. And I mean, like, interesting. If it's anti hippie, I'm right there with you. <laughs> name, a, name a worse movie that is beloved by lots of people than Easy Rider. I dare you. It's terrible. Anyway, <laughs> sorry, I just I just annoyed everyone get, who loves Easy get, Rider. Get get on your sand, your, your soapbox now and All tell right. me like. Uh, uh. <laughs> anyway, so Ilya, what is your short end? Well, my short end is uh, not Tarantino, but it 
just like all the thought pieces that have been spawned from from spawned face, spawned <laughs> no pun intentioned spawn spawned, ranch yeah spawned on facebook um or been distributed on facebook or have popped up in your feed my obsession this week is with the netflix documentary the great hack it's very good the great hack it is very good and uh it's a little bit like homework i feel like when you're watching it because uh you know that there was this data breach and you would think that oh it's facebook data so maybe that data is not that important to me but then when you actually realize what's happened what cambridge analytica was able to do and how they profited and Facebook profited and all these people profited at the perversion of political systems. Does that mm. seem like fair, oh, fair, yeah. fair way to, to put it? Yeah, it's a, uh, it's really damning. And there is a fantastic protagonist in Brit Kaiser. Brit Kaiser to me is like, she's dynamic to watch. You're, I'm interested in hearing her whole story by the time the I first, the first scene with her is her at burning man. And you're like, Oh, she's like an artsy hippie. And then you realize she's one of the people who like guided Cambridge Analytica to to make Brexit happen and to elect Donald Trump. And, but, but it's even more complicated than that because that's, uh, that's not her full story. Like you don't really get her full story to last 15, 20 minutes of the, of the, the movie. And I, I was too busy gouging my eyes out by then <laughs> because of, because of how actual reality has been perverted by, by mathematicians. I, I couldn't help but think too that, you know, the reason that everyone has a problem with this is because this is where the public sector is intersecting with the private sector. And it has to do with the, you know, literally the, the overthrowing, well, not necessarily overthrowing, but the perversion of governments through propaganda. And this sort of exact sort of thing happens in the private space all the time, just with large businesses, especially the largest businesses in the world right now, taking your data and figuring out how to market and manipulate you as as a consumer. So uh, the fact that it's happening now and that it's outed, I think now has to cause everyone to think very long and hard at exactly how is personal information about myself being perverted to cause a different reaction. Uh, the, the movie starts off with essentially a statement saying like, oh, you think your phones or your your things are listening to you. Well, chances are that's not really what's happening. They're just to have a really good algorithm. So they're figuring out what actually appeals to you. No, it's been proven that these devices actually are listening to you. And I mean, it, right now my phone's right here. That's right. You're, and, if, and if we mention uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood a few more times, I almost assure you that if you go into your Gmail or into Yahoo Mail or something else, there's going to be showtimes for this movie right here, and you're you're they're going well, to be trying to Gmail. So there you go. Okay, well there you go. But anyway, you, you get my point. Yes. The retargeting and the manipulation of what sort of psychographics, which is the 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 technical term essentially for all that other data about you that's that you know, makes up that hey you're a white male in your 40s and you have these political leanings and everything I'm in else. My late 30s, to be fair. Late 30s. Wow. Yes. Look, at, look at you, man. I, I've de-aged. <laughs> uh, all this time that you've been doing stuff, I've been traveling at light speed or near okay. light speed. Wow. So you're actually aging faster than me. I'm just, I'm a hologram. I've been I'm, a hologram this I'm whole time. Fucked. And anyway, uh, you, you get my point. Yes. If you have not seen The Great Hack, it's and you have Netflix. It's free. You should watch it. It's uh, uh you know enjoy your homework. Is, is, enjoy is there the- anything. Is there anything complex in it to you that Netflix, which is uh, basically a TV network that it's runs meta, on, on, for an, sure. on an algorithm of figuring yes. you out, is releasing a documentary about an algorithm that figures everything about you out? Well, this is the this is sort of the uh, conundrum of all of these. Um, you know, if there was a NBC bashing uh, documentary that was produced and promoted by NBC and they could make money, 
I don't know if necessarily they wouldn't show it. It yeah. kind of depends. You have to decide where where the commerce comes from and where the the uh, the art. I mean, comes because from. like I guess like as a consumer, if Netflix is analyzing the movies I like, so they can decide what movies to make in aggregate by aggregating everybody's data and also by to suggest movies that I might like to back to me. I don't care. Great. I got to say that if I'm going to look at algorithms and uh, what people are doing, I got I think that Netflix's algorithm is terrible. Actually, I think really? that I think that yeah, when I look at the stuff as a we're recommending this because you watch ten minutes of this, and I go like no oh, no Amazon yeah. has, Amazon's algorithm is <laughs> hilarious to me because I watch a very eclectic selection of movies, and so <laughs> it'll be like uh, you know you clearly want to watch Exterminators from the year three thousand, and also Sophie's Choice, and I'm like. Whoa. <laughs> Exterminators from the year 3000. That's a real movie. That's, that's a real movie that I watched on Netflix. <laughs> I mean, on uh, excuse me, on Amazon. Uh, did you also watch Battle Beyond the Stars? I did watch Battle Beyond <laughs> the Stars on Amazon. Oh, no. I watched that movie so many times on HBO when I was a kid, and I was like, I wonder if I'll remember it, and I did not remember I, anything about it. I saw it. it in the fucking theater. That movie, I think that movie's pretty cool, actually. It uh, might be Roger Corman's Citizen Kane. Uh, you know, uh, I, I thought for sure that it would be on Canopy. I thought that's where you'd be finding it. So. Well, I mean, I think sometimes stuff ends up on Canopy because it's easy to license. and I mean, some of it is brand new stuff. I mean, I think that happens on all the channels like, you know, Amazon and Shutter and whatnot. Mm-hmm. It's uh, yeah, uh, f- fair enough. So anyway, uh, Ben, I think that we're just now yammering on about movies, which I think uh, that, that, that's, that's that, Jim Dandy. Yeah, I was gonna say that that uh, is probably ten percent of all the time that we've spent together, we yammered on. About <laughs> that's movies. all we do. <laughs> uh, okay, and, so and we agree on no, no movies. I don't know if any of our listeners realize you and I rarely agree. Rarely, on stuff. We, yeah. but you know what's interesting? When we do agree on a movie, we seem to really agree. That's Shining, true. Miller's Crossing. Oh yeah, well. Obviously, so. both of those movies. I mean, who couldn't agree with those two? You know what? I meet people who are not shining people. So they're wrong. I know they're totally wrong. They're factually wrong. Uh, they're, they're, yes, those they people should, are wrong. They should <laughs> hang it up. They should just wear a T-shirt that says wrong. Wrong. Yeah. I don't. Uh, I don't want to know any of their other opinions. If you think The Shining is a bad movie, you're just wrong. You know what? You and I are in, a, in complete agreement, lockstep with this one. Good. So okay, so Ben, uh, it's the end <laughs> controversial of... move to like a Kubrick movie on a cinematography <laughs> podcast. Anyway, go on. Uh, okay, so um, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me uh, frequently on Twitter uh, at Neptune Salad. You can find me on my website, which is BenRockOnline.com. In fact, you know, feel free to knock yourself out. I'm on all all the social media connections are right there on. Ben Rock Online. And uh, interestingly enough, the short film that I made a few years ago that premiered at the 2016 Tribeca Film Festival, it's called Future Boyfriend, just passed a million views on YouTube. Good for you, man. On on the Dust channel. Dust is like a sci-fi channel. Nice. That's that's fantastic. That's a great. It's a great short too. I'm very. Happy uh, I saw it. I don't remember where, but I saw it. Somewhere. I think I showed it to you at my house right after we recorded host raps one time. Hmm, could be, but I really enjoyed it. So I'm and, pretty uh, happy with it. Yeah, yeah it features. You, you uh, got a great cast. You got great performances. You got we, great we special got, effects. We got French Stewart in it. I mean, how how do you go wrong with French Stewart? Who did your VFX for that? Uh, a fella named Tom Moser. Good oh, friend. all right, Tom, fr- Tom, friend of the show. Yeah. Tom Moser did the did the VFX. Uh, George Foyt shot it. George uh, is uh, you know my probably my most frequent collaborator as a cinematographer love working with george and uh we'll never be on the show i, I keep wanting <laughs> to get george on the show he is just a busy mf I that know. guy well, is working constantly the thing about george is i think he wants to come on the show and he has a big thing to promote yeah and so we'll we'll have him on here but uh, this this may be a bold statement to make i think george is as funny as larry fong what george no is, george I, is a funny I, person george is a funny guy but he is droll and larry was, was not droll 
Yes, but I think that you will find yourself laughing as much as you did with Larry. Larry is very that bar is fucking high. Okay. That is that just, Larry just, Fong has set the bar. The gauntlet is high, George. If you're listening to us, and uh, I don't think George listens. I think George does listen. Oh, Actually, does I know listen. for a fact George listens because he'll comment on stuff. I don't know if he's listening now because we're past the part that he'd be interested in. But yeah, I'm sure he's done. Yeah, he, he never would have made it through Tarantino. Yeah, enough about Future Boyfriend. But check out Future Boyfriend, everybody. Oh yeah, okay. uh, Illy, where can people find you? Oh yeah, that's right. I exist too. Hey, okay, so um, you can find me on the prove the, the, the <laughs> prove it. I'm yeah. proving it right now. You sound of my voice. I'm proving it three dimensional right here. Uh, you can find me on the Instagram at Ilya Friedman. You can find me on facebook at Ilya friedman linkedin at Ilya friedman and of course where i am right now at hot rod to cameras so you were totally on brand until that last one yeah that that's uh mm. yeah that won't do you can also find of course the Cinepod uh on instagram and the cinematography podcast on facebook and if you have still listened to this point of the show through all of our yammering and I tuned out. happy talk i'm sure you did uh do us a favor, write a review, subscribe, share. You know, it would be so awesome if some people shared one of our posts. And as That'd we've be... shown, if you write a review, we'll probably read it on on uh, on mic and criticize it. I wouldn't say we criticize it. We generally praise them all. That's but... true, except for the one where... The... No, you 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 jumped to my defense yes. unnecessarily. Cause, uh, and I remember Softboxer. Uh, 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 Softboxer, I, I'm, lo- I'm very much looking forward. If you are in L.A., come in. I'd be happy to give you a shirt. Yeah, get a T-shirt from Ilya, Softboxer. Hold me closer, tiny Softboxer. No, it doesn't work. I, I, I immediately thought like, you know, like a softbox, like you'd put on a, on a light softbox. Of course, boxer. yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. I, it could be like you just, I guess, a very weak boxer. But no. <laughs> I know, I, I think he's, he's, he's all shimmered. Yeah, I think so. Sh- he shimmered up. All right, so uh, we'd also like to thank our editors, Ben and Abby. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. We really gave you a lot to work with this time. Yes, and by a lot to work with, we mean thank you for all the editing you just did. <laughs> That's right, making it sound half- halfway sane. Uh, thank you to Alana Cody for uh, producing this, uh, this here adventure this misadventure and uh, keeping the fire under our asses to keep this, uh, to keep the, the train rolling. Uh, thank you. Kays. Who's not listening to this. I mean, he might, who knows? It's never going to happen. But, but if it does one day, it we will. could insult his I, dogs. He's never, we're not, we're, he's not. Don't you it. dare insult Kays's dogs. I love those dogs. They're great dogs. What are their names? Uh, it is uh, Zelda and Halo. And oh, then shit, he his, knew. And then his girlfriend, uh, Christina, her dog's name is Elvis. Good for you for remembering all I of have those. spent so much time there, and I love those dogs, for real. I, I figured. You are a dog person. Yes. All right. All right. Until next time. Episode 44. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.